Welcome to After Hour, a podcast where a journalist retains a lawyer to solve societal problems. Because sometimes knowing why isn't good enough. We need to know what we can do. Sometimes we need more than truth. We need hope. I'm Jane Steele, your host and investigative journalist here with Joseph, the managing partner of Sang & Associates. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Jane. Thanks so much for being willing to speak with me again. My pleasure being here. So the topic today is the hostage of asylum seekers. So essentially people who are coming here for aid and getting kidnapped or extorted for sums of money. This particular case takes place in New York City at the New York City Port Authority bus terminal. There were three men involved in this criminal activity. Their names are Francisco Betancourt, Pascal Rodriguez, and Lucilo Cabrera. So these three men would essentially find their targets as the passengers were coming off of the bus. So at this terminal, all the passengers are flooding out and they would seek out who they were gonna victimize. And they would look particularly for people who had recently entered the U.S. to seek asylum. They, I guess they, they developed an eye for finding these people, but they would look for clues like a, a monitoring band around some of these people's ankles or even just like immigration paperwork that they were holding. However, they were able to identify them. That's, that's what they would do. And then one of these men would move in. They would sometimes claim to be a person of authority. So maybe police officer or an immigration official, basically anyone who they thought would be intimidating and who this person that they were trying to extort would respect. So they would approach this person Sometimes they would even claim to be a, a helpful stranger. Their most common little scheme was essentially to force victims into a taxi ride that they didn't need and didn't want so that they could get them alone in a threatening situation. So many of these victims were sent on hours-long car rides that they, they didn't want, they didn't need, and they were held actually in this car for ransom until their family members could get together enough money to pay this taxi, quote-unquote, fare. It wasn't a taxi fare, it was blackmailing. And this was usually in sums of more than $1,000. That was the average. And this was usually in sums of $1,000 and more. They would drive literally for hours really slowly through Pennsylvania before going to Connecticut. That was kind of their, their typical route. One victim whose case really stuck with me was this woman from Honduras who came with her two little kids and entered actually the U.S. at our Texas border before applying for asylum. So she went ahead and did that and then was actually given permission to travel to Connecticut to be with her sister until her hearing. So this is when she comes into the picture because when she got to New York City, she went ended up at that bus terminal where these men, these men's hunting ground essentially. She was going to board a connecting bus to Connecticut, but one of the men approached her and her and saying, there's no bus. I'll help you though. So he offered his services. He then took her bus ticket, grabbed the arm of her small son and asked for the phone number of a family. So this, this man, Bettencourt, called her sister and essentially said that you know, oh, your sister ended up in upstate New York and she's supposed to be in New York City and there's no bus to Connecticut. So he's lying to her. And then he says, you know, don't worry about it. I'll put them in a taxi. It'll be $3 a mile. I'll get them to you. The victim's sister wasn't having it because she said, for one, I don't have the money to pay you that much. Two, like, I can just drive down and get them. It's okay. Like, please don't do this. Like, don't, you know, I'll come get my sister. He hung up on her. 
basically. So he told her, probably kind of insinuating your sister's not safe, and then accentuated that by hanging up on her. The victim and her children were then brought to his car, and he took her paperwork, her immigration paperwork and identification, and drove them slowly to Connecticut. He ultimately, over those hours, demanded $900 from her family members in order to drop her off at an agreed meeting spot. The family was only able to pay him about $700. The, the man locked himself inside the car. He put the mother outside with one of her children, but he locked himself inside the car with her oldest child and insisted that they pay that next hundred dollars, which is just chills, right? Because <laughs> it chills. They, they were able to give it. And then he forced them to go to an ATM to get the final one hundred dollars. So just a really, really scary situation for me. That'd be I mean, it's traumatic, right? To say the least, after everything you've been through. It is so sad. Yeah, especially as as a mother, right? You're watching watching your child in that situation. Um, so eventually, this had been going on for years, but this woman caught air that someone else had gone through a very similar situation. And so even though they were hesitant to come forward, they actually took this information to the FBI and got these men apprehended. So they ended up, all of these men were sentenced between 8 to 14 years in prison. But the reason they had been able to do this for years was, one, because their victims, they were preying on the most vulnerable, right? But also because they knew that their victims were really afraid of approaching law enforcement, even to report a crime, because they were afraid that it would reflect badly on themselves when they're trying to get asylum here. So it's just, it's just really, to me, it's just really sad because, you know, this woman, it's like she didn't deserve that. Like, that's such a terrible situation. And she's only here because she's escaping a terrible situation. Um, and I think that's, that's just really a shame, right? Because the whole reason we welcome not just the U.S., but other countries, we, we try to welcome refugees and have, have that as an option is because we're trying to help people who are in desperate need, right? And so then when they come here, now having to navigate a tricky immigration system that they're not at all familiar with, you know, and then being on their own, essentially, to, to be victimized by people who are essentially making their livelihood off of exploiting them um, and taking advantage of that vulnerability. To me, it's just really sad. We make it so much harder than it has to be, right? Because I cannot imagine the level of, of pain or danger or suffering that would cause someone to take nothing and just flee. But then I feel like we do them a disservice by constantly changing our immigration, by making that final step so unpredictable, right? Because under the Trump administration, immigration was one, we had one picture of immigration, right? But then now with President Biden, it's very different. And that just happens almost instantaneously, right? If you catch, catch our uh, election cycle at a particular time. Um, and just one example of that is that under the Trump administration for, for the fiscal year 2021, the annual refugee admission ceiling was set at 15,000, right? So 15,000 people, that's our cap. But then the Biden administration has pledged that for next year, for fiscal year 2022, the ceiling is 125,000 refugees. So that could be good or bad, right? Depending on how you feel. But my point is that that's a huge discrepancy between 15,000 and 125,000. 
And if you're someone who's trying to make a better life for yourself and for your family, the, the odds are just, it's, it's hard. It almost, it's like you're playing Russian roulette, right? You don't know, you know, oh, if I leave now, will I be welcomed or will I be turned away? And yet, obviously, people are still willing to take that risk, which to me makes it seem like they're not trying to, to scam. They're just desperate. And it, it goes almost without saying that people who are seeking asylum are doing so for really valid reasons. A lot of people who are coming to our southern border are from places like Honduras or Guatemala or El Salvador, where violence, homicide, femicide is just really common and rampant. But then not only that, on their way to the United States, there's cartels that are extremely dangerous and especially at the border because these criminal organizations will assume that whoever these asylum seekers are maybe have money maybe have family members in the u.s that they can extort so for them it's almost an exploitation boom in their in their criminal enterprise so these victims are leaving a horrific situation but then walking through a, a really really dark path um kidnapping is really common at least 32 instances of kidnapping of asylum seekers in particular happened between November 2019 and January 2020. So just a few months, right? That happened not only to adults, but to children. When women were the ones being kidnapped, sexual assault is common. And this would happen not only by cartels or gangs, but even by the Mexican police. There's been instances where they do kidnapping as well if they're corrupt. I found one statistic that was just really sobering. So essentially, the timeline was January 2018 to September 2019, 61.9% of asylum seekers were exposed to at least one violent event two years prior to leaving their home country. So the last two years they spent in their home country, the majority were exposed to a violent event. And then almost, almost half of those, it was the violent death or disappearance of a relative. And death was, was more common. It, and it just puts it in perspective for me is they're not leaving, you know, oh, this this is a bummer, you know, oh, I, I just want better. It's your family members are being violently murdered. Well, then it might make sense to to walk, walk this really scary, unknown, risky path because I don't want to see anyone. anyone. I don't want that to happen to me or any of my family members, which just makes me have so much compassion for this woman, right? The woman with her two children who was stuck in a taxi, fearing for her life, for her children's safety, um, and extorted. I, I found one quote that essentially said, you know, these people who are fleeing violence shouldn't be criminalized or greeted with guns, right? They Their needs should be put at the center of immigration policies because in some respect, this whole refugee program that we have is to help them, right? And, and we obviously want to help because these are people in, in dire need. It's just a really hard question. And, and this came out as I was doing research of just how hard it is in terms of finding an answer. It's It comes up a lot in the news Immigration is a hot topic, right? I mean, people have a lot of opinions. One party, I'd say the Democratic Party, wants to take in as many people as we can. They they really recognize the needs of these refugees that I've I've kind of talked about, and they want to be as accommodating as possible, which I I really resonate with. And then the Republicans 
want, they just have a slightly different set of values, right? So they want to put the American public's need first. They value safety, you know, the economy, our, our labor. And then under those conditions, accept as many refugees as possible. So I really do see the logic of both sides. Um, and I don't want to present either with this, as a straw man. But what I find unjust, it just seems like who loses, the person that loses, is the person who needs the most help. And so I'm not, I'm not asking you to solve this entire asylum issue, but I really would love your take on what we should do as a nation to have these conversations, have these debates, but then make sure that we're still protecting the people we're setting out to protect. Well, today's topic seems to be how to solve the asylum problem of the United States. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry um, about that. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's good. At our firm, we made a conscious decision not to do asylum cases, but we still end up getting dragged into having to do asylum-related cases. So people who come in, right, they don't have any paperwork, and but yet maybe they're filing for adjustment, maybe they're getting citizenship later on, maybe they fall into some tricky landlord situation and we end up having to help them, yeah. but we just didn't touch their asylum application. So I'm very aware of the problem that you're presenting me, there's the two different political parties, each with their own set of value system, and all the problems that these asylum seekers face once they cross the border. So what is the solution? To answer that question, let's use the analogy that I hear a lot of people talk about. You have a ranch with an additional occupancy of 10 people on top of your family who's staying there because there's a national crisis and people need a lot of help. So it's the food, it's the shelter, it's the sustainable living of 10 additional people in your ranch. Some people sleep sleeping in the living room, some people doubling up in a certain room. But you look out and there's 50 people who needs to come in. What do you do? Well, you could easily dive into a philosophical utilitarian calculus on what is the maximum happiness that can be afforded to all parties involved. You can see, well, maybe the 40 people can fight it out outside 50 people fight it outside and then the 10 best come in or you can allow everybody in and fight it out in here and then kick everybody else out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the wrong way to look at the situation is by saying if you only allow 10 people in, then you are somehow being cold hearted, right? Mm -hmm. And you are still allowing 10 people in to your own ranch that you don't have to. And then if you allow all 50 people in when you only have a capacity for 10, somehow you are being super charitable and loving because that might be foolishness. It might ruin everybody, right? And so it, it's a very difficult situation and it's very commonly looked at with that zero-sum mentality. But I think it's that zero-sum mentality that's the problem. If there's 50 people that need to come in and you only have capacity for 10, why not put the challenge out there which 10 people can create the best scenario so that the other 40 people can also come in. And this is not at all impossible. A lot of these refugee-seeking, asylum-seeking immigrants, they are doctors in their own right. They have master's degree. They are politicians. They, they are generals in, in the military. They have a lot of skill sets that we in the U.S. don't have or that their logic and their, their work ethic is up there with some of the best of the best. It's just unfortunate they were born in a different place and they have to experience some hardships. And so I don't think it's the right way to look at the situation with a zero-sum mentality. People who are going to be leeches off of our society and we have to continue to feed them. I think the better idea is 
look at them as resources as well, and how to integrate them into society, how to help them, help themselves, and to help their fellow men. So yeah, I, I guess my question is, how do we accelerate that process, right? So a brilliant doctor who finds himself in a position where you need to seek asylum, how can we get them from that point to now practicing again or are fully integrated and being able to be one of those ten who now opens the door to to forty more? How how do we do that? Well. I don't know, but I think what will help is an orientation, and I think we as a society know this, right? So, from junior high to high school, there's a transition from high school to college. You know, you go through a new university, you go into a, a you join a company. There's usually an orientation, and we show them the ropes, and you give them a training, you give them a mentor. The case of immigration in our civic life: people who have never been to the U.S. come in here. We give them some paperwork that takes years to get, and without any sort of orientation, expecting them just to pull themselves by their own bootstraps and suddenly make themselves great, completely vulnerable to all this crime. I think that's a bad idea. So I think if there's a little bit of orientation, maybe the government can take on the responsibility of integrating them into society as an option program, right? Not even forcing them to do it, but providing them the option of going through this program. You can get your work permit. You can uh, train under、um, a government program. They could do community service. You know, is is the situation? In our country, so great that we have no problems to solve in every single city, in every single county, right? That's ridiculous. We have so many problems、mm -hmm. in every way, shape, and form. But these people can potentially help. I think this is the perfect example where capitalism fails in this way, where people don't speak English necessarily, and they don't have the、uh, resources or capability or even the work permit to start out and to be、um, uh, maximum efficient. To make society better, but with a little help, they might be able to do that. And it's not even going to、um, harm the U.S. labor force or any sense because there's a lot of problems that nobody wants to solve. It, there's no、um, profitability in solving. But if you solve this problem, it might provide more "quote unquote" housing, food shortage for other asylum seekers. For example, these asylum seekers and refugee seekers. What if you give them the job of building up a camp that can house ten thousand people and having their own chef and their kitchen? I mean, Chipotle and McDonald's—they're not necessarily going to open up shop there because it might not be profitable and they can't comply with the labor laws and hire the right people. But do they have chefs? Do they have、uh, medical support? I'm sure they could probably find somebody who have that skill set to do that as well, right?、Mm. So I think that is sort of my take on the asylum problem. I think the U.S. is very naive and, in a way, not capitalistic enough,、mm. because there's this opportunity that there are a lot of people seeking help. What is the best way to integrate them so that there's a maximum benefit for them and for ourselves? It's not necessarily a monetary benefit. Right,、um, it's foolish to think capitalism is just purely whatever is most profitable for corporate America. Because capitalism, in its core, is just the exchange of incentives. How do you incentivize an individual or a group of people to work for their own benefit? Right, and so if you're so short-sighted in providing people just freedom so that they can help themselves. Without giving them the opportunity or resource to help themselves, help you, help them, help others, well, then that's kind of a short-sighted capitalism. At least the orientation program will allow most people to 
orient into the U.S. civic life, get a work permit, and help in any way the U.S. economy needs, and also for them to help themselves and understand our culture and our values. And I'm sure it will significantly decrease crime and all sorts of problems as well. It might not solve the problem you mentioned, how to get a doctor to get his license again, because that's very complicated. (laughs) Um, He might have to go to medical school. He might have to take the board. But with all that genius in his training, I'm sure we will be able to find a good place and he will be able to help himself find a good place to help and to integrate into our society. A common objection that I hear about this idea is that there's just not enough resources. There's not enough land, there's not enough cities to house everybody. But when you take a look at America, so much land is vacant and not productive. And when you set up a community and then when people helping each other and maybe the government has to invest a little bit to help them get work permits and to provide them little incentives. And I'm not even talking about decades. I'm talking about within a short few years, something that's just completely barren, vacant with like dead lizards. (laughs) Those plots of land, entire cities can spring forth and become a productive economic center. You'll be surprised at how hardworking and how smart people are. Mm. These people are so desperate and you give them the opportunity to build up a new life for themselves, they are willing to do so much. Mm. And when they build up a community and then when they pass it on to their children and their children grows up in this environment, seeing the great country that gave their family an opportunity to escape terror and how hardworking their parents are and having that uh, immigrant mentality, who knows when we'll see the next Alexander Hamilton. That's a really beautiful vision. I guess my only question is, is it a little too utopic? Can we basic, can we do it? Where you find a will, you find a way. Many thanks to Joseph for our conversation today. After Hours is a podcast by Sang & Associates, an international firm dedicated to solving legal problems with creative solutions. If you enjoyed today's episode of After Hour, you will find these conversations and more on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. For information on Sang & Associates, go to sangslaw.com. Feel free to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook, as well as to learn more about what we do and hear success stories from Sang & Associates. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thank you for joining me for After Hour. I'm Jane Steele.